And so if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. It's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, our text, uh, I think it's every text of Scripture is important and needful for us, but uh, being as, Lord willing, we are going to be uh, particularizing soon and having our own session of elders, uh, even if it's only two of us for the time being, um, I thought it was important that we'd spend some time, kind of slow down and not go through the passage quite so fast and take a look at these qualifications for elder. What Paul teaches us here in our passage is, what are, what are you and I to look for in the officers, prospective officers in the church? Paul tells us that here in our text, as well as Titus chapter 1, Paul gives us here the biblical qualifications for the men who might serve as elders and overseers in the church. We saw last Sunday most of these godly character qualities are the very same things that are required of every believer. The only real exception is able to teach. And so when we go through these qualifications, it's good for us. You know, many of us will never be elders. Many of you will never be an elder or a deacon. But all these same things should be evident more and more in your own life. And so it's it's also helpful for us to look at these things. Uh, you don't get a pass on trying to cultivate these things in your life by the work of the Holy Spirit within you, just because you may not ever be an elder or a deacon in the church. Now, this text that Paul gives us in these seven verses as brief as they are, they are the biblical qualifications, or really the marks of an elder. They're the marks of an elder. They're kind of, the, think of them as the telltale signs of those whom the Lord Jesus Christ has gifted and set apart for office in his church. You could say in some ways, it's not so much that the church picks her elders, it's that we recognize them. We recognize the ones whom God, even the Lord Jesus Christ, has set apart by his grace and working and his sovereign dispensing of his gifts from the right hand of God. If we, if you and I disregard these things that Paul has put in the text here by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, if we disregard them, or if we, you know, kind of decide to look for things that we think are more important, we look for other things than what's found in this text in our prospective elders, we're not only making ourselves out to be wiser than God, which is never a good idea, but we're doing a great disservice both to the church and to the men that we put in those positions if they're not qualified and gifted and called by God to do those things. And in some ways, to put an unqualified man in office is to place a burden upon them that Christ has not equipped them to bear. And so it doesn't help the church and it doesn't help the man either. Fathers and brothers in the church... Who knows if the Lord Jesus Christ may or may not call upon you in the future to serve in his church as an elder 
or as a deacon. So as we go through this list uh, this, this afternoon and in future Sundays, what I would hope you might do is look at this text as we go through it and think of it like a mirror in which you look at yourself and look at your life. Look at it as an opportunity to examine yourselves to see if these things are becoming more and more evident in your lives by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And again, I can't stress enough, this goes for every believer. No matter how young, how old you are, no matter what you may be doing, these things are things that should be evident in all of our lives more and more by the work of the Spirit as He sanctifies us and makes us more and more like Christ. And if and if you're looking in the mirror, you know, very often if you have a sensitive conscience, which is a good thing, you know, you probably look at this text and you think, I don't see any of this in my life. That's probably not true. But if if you're convicted of that, if you're thinking to yourself, boy, I don't really see much of this in my life, let this cause you, if I can quote the Heidelberg Catechism from one of our recent studies, to, to let this drive you to consistently endeavor to pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that you might become more and more conformed to the image of God till you arrive at the perfection proposed to us in the life to come. You know, one day all of these, all of these qualities, these fruits of the Spirit, will be yours perfectly in heaven. We don't have that down here. We, we are not going to be perfectly sanctified in this life. We make small beginnings, all of us, in many ways. But in heaven, you will be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ in every way and free from sin in every way, which will make heaven that much more what heaven is meant to be. Well, the first qualification I'd like to look at in our text this afternoon, what's the first qualification? You know, when you read through the text... It's probably not the first thing that you think of when you look at the text. The very first qualification might kind of escape your notice. We might think that the qualifications start in verse 2, but they actually start in verse 1, where Paul says in verse 1, he says, The saying is trustworthy, and what is that? If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task or a good work. So what's the first qualification for elder or overseer in the church? It's the aspiration and desire for the work. It's a willingness and a desire to do that noble task. And in some ways, what I think Paul is getting at here, he's talking about that internal sense of God's calling, about a man recognizing God's call upon his life to serve in this way, in this ministry of service. That internal sense of God's calling in your life must, you know, there are some people who feel a sense of God's call and they force it upon a church or they attempt to do so. That that internal sense of call, whether it be for a teaching elder or a ruling elder or even a deacon, has to be recognized by the church. They have to see it too, which is an important part. But that internal calling, that internal sense of God's calling in your life, that's where it starts. That's where it has to begin. That sense of God's calling I think no doubt has to do in, in a lot, in large measure with the spiritual gifts that Christ has given you. As Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 7, he says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You know, if you're a believer in Christ, God has given you spiritual gifts of some kind. They may not be the kind of gifts required to be an elder or deacon or a pastor, but he's given every Christian gifts to use in serving his fellow believers in the church. In some cases, as Paul says in that passage in Ephesians 4, verse 11, he did give some as pastors and teachers. But those aren't the only gifts. He's given every one of us gifts in the Holy Spirit 
that are given for us to be using them for the benefit of the church. And this, this aspiration, this desire for, for this office and this work, it's not a selfish, worldly, prideful aspiration that Paul's talking about here. What it is, it's a, it's a matter of, of recognizing in some way God's gifts and calling upon your life. It's about using the gifts that God has given you as a stewardship. He's given them to you for a reason. You know, the old passage where Jesus talks about not hiding your light under a bushel. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bucket, under under a bushel. It's letting the light shine that God has given you, which is what we're all called to do. Now, that aspiration, that sense of God's calling on your life is a must. But no one, no one should be pushed into the office of elder unwillingly. Listen to the counsel the Apostle Peter gives to the elders of the church in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He says this, Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example, but being examples for the flock. Not under compulsion, but willingly. And then what does he add there? As God would have you. That's a sense of call. Do you, do you perceive that God has called you to something and would have you do something? Then you should do it with all your might. You should do it willingly as God would have you and not under compulsion. You should do it and not be ashamed to do it eagerly. Every Christian should be unashamed to use your gifts eagerly and willingly. Because God gave you those gifts to serve the body and edify the church. The elders of God's church are given to us that they might shepherd the flock of God, he says, and exercise oversight. And this isn't about ego or a power trip, because whose flock is it? He doesn't say shepherd your flock. He says shepherd God's flock, the flock of God that is among you. But the ministry of the elders of the church must be done again willingly and eagerly, as God would have you do. It's as if the love of Christ constrains you to do it for the glory of Christ and the good of his church. Not only that, but our elders are to serve in this ministry of shepherding God's flock. He says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And so I ask you this afternoon, are you willing and even eager to use the gifts that God has given you for the good of the church, for the edification of your brothers and sisters in Christ, in their faith? Again, that should be true of you, whether you're going to be an elder or not. No matter what God has called you to do in the church, no matter what gifts he may have given you by his Holy Spirit, as, as the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11, he says, as each, you know, each one, as each has received a gift. He's saying it's not just pastors and teachers. We might be the ones up front in some ways, but he says that as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied or manifold grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, not giving your own opinions, right? Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's the goal in using your gifts. That's supposed to be the goal, to glorify God 
through Jesus Christ. Then he adds, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So whether you're a speaker or a server, Peter says, use the gifts God has given you. God's as stewards. The gifts God has given you, whatever they may be, whether you think they're great or small, whether you think they're important or not, they are a stewardship from Christ. And we are to use them as God has given them to us. And so I ask you this afternoon again, are you actively using the gifts that God has given you in some way to serve one another in the church? Do you see those gifts in your life as a stewardship of God's grace? And are you doing all these things in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ? That should be the goal of every believer in Jesus Christ. Again, not just those called to office in the church. Well, that brings us to the second the second qualification for those who would be called to serve as overseers or elders in the church is in verse 2. In the first part of verse 2, Paul says, Therefore, you know, because of that, therefore an overseer must be what? Above reproach. Or if you have King James, it says blameless. What does that mean? What does it mean to be above reproach? Every Christian should be above reproach. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be blameless? It certainly does not mean that a man is to be sinlessly perfect. For no one can rightly claim to be that. 1 John 1.8, what does it say there? 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, what? We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. You're not fooling anybody else. You're deceiving yourself if you think you don't sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What does it mean that there's... What it means to be above reproach or to be blameless means to have no scandalous sin or habits in a person's life as a Christian. Such a person must be able to be held forth as an example to the flock of God, as Peter even said in 1 Peter 5.3. That's one of the roles of an elder. What did he say up in, in that passage I read a little while ago? He says, not domineering over those in your charge, 1 Peter 5, 3, but being what? Being examples to the flock. Being an elder does involve great authority, but it's not a power trip. It's an example to be set for the care of others. An elder must be an example of faith and love in Christ Jesus for the church to look up to, to follow, and to emulate. When you when you choose an elder, when you're looking for an elder or a deacon, that's what you should have in mind when you think of, of that man. What kind of man are you looking at? Is he, an, is he an example to emulate in his faith and love in Christ? John Calvin puts it this way. He says, the meaning of this text in verse 2, the meaning is that he ought not to be marked by any disgrace that would detract from his authority. There will certainly not be found a man who is free from every fault But it is one thing to be burdened with ordinary faults that do not hurt a man's reputation because the most excellent men share them, but quite another to have a name that is held in infamy and be smirched by some scandalous disgrace. So you could also say being above reproach in some ways, it's a summary of what the rest of the qualifications were that he mentions in our text. Being above reproach, other than being able to teach, Being above reproach means the rest of those things in the passage are evident in a man's life. Such a man that's above reproach is the husband of one wife. It literally means a one-woman man. We'll get into that, Lord willing, in in a week or two. Uh, A husband of one wife, he is to be be above reproach, is to be sober-minded. 
as he says in verse 2, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. To be a blameless man is to manage his household well and have his children in submission, verse 4. And what does Paul say in verse 5? He says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And what is God's church? He tells us in the next chapter. It's the household of God. It's the family of God. You could say that a man's family or household is like a church in miniature. It's the proving ground or testing ground of those who would serve as overseers in God's church. Paul adds in verse 6 that he must not be a recent convert. Why? Or he may become puffed up with conceit, you know, pride, and fall into condemnation of the devil. You know, Paul says elsewhere not to lay hands on a man hastily. It's what he's talking about. He's saying don't be in a rush. Don't be in a rush to ordain someone and lay hands on them, and certainly not ordaining a recent convert. Why is that? If you ordain a recent convert into office, no matter how gifted that man might seem to be, it's to rush things and to risk pride and scandal and ruin for the man and harm to the church. You could say it in a sense, it's to fail to give that man enough time to observe his character and make sure whether or not he is truly above reproach. Sometimes we might see a very gifted person and rush them into the, into ministry in some way, and that's not the right way to go, we must not be in a hurry. Finally, to be above reproach means that a man of God must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Think about that. How often do we think about that when you're thinking about the officers in the church? What is their reputation, not just on Sundays, in the church, in the walls of the church, but outside Monday through Saturday? in the workplace, among their neighbors and others that don't even know the Lord. Their their reputation among unbelievers is important. Those outside of the church must see the godliness evident in his life. Another way of saying that is he must not be a hypocrite. He's going to be a sinner. Every elder, every deacon is going to be a sinner. But he must not be a hypocrite. His Christianity must not be play-acting. A man can't live one way on Sundays... And living a different way the rest of the week, his conduct must not be different with fellow Christians than it is with unbelievers in the world. And so I ask this evening, what what is your reputation among unbelievers? What's your reputation among your co-workers or your friends at school? Would any of them be surprised to hear that you're a Christian because of how you talk or how you act? Would they look at your conduct or the way you speak and have reason to question the reality of your faith? That's something that ought to be the concern of every believer, not just those considering office in the church. Every single one of us who professes faith in Christ should live in such a way that we are salt and light in the world, as Christ even said in Matthew 5. Every believer, Jesus says, let your light shine before others, Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's not showing off. It's not that they might give glory to you. If they see your good works, they know you're doing it for God. They give God the glory. That is how every Christian is to live our lives. Now, you should note well, I think maybe many of you have already noticed this in the text as we've read it. Note well the kinds of qualifications that Scripture places before us 
when it comes to the kind of men we should be looking for as elders and deacons. Again, we might be tempted to kind of think as the world does. You know, very often, that's one of the plagues of the church, is worldliness. Paul says very often that we're not supposed to be conformed to the world, Romans 12, 1 and 2, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And very often, we don't see things the way that we should. We think the way the world thinks. And we bring that kind of thinking even into the church, even into important decisions in the church, like choosing elders and deacons, choosing pastors, teaching elders and ruling elders. We might focus on a man's personality, whether he's outgoing or gregarious. We might look for someone who is well-known or successful in business, or a man who has the right connections or who knows the right people. We might even do like the Israelites did and look upon a man's appearance or stature. But the Bible tells us again and again that's a mistake. That's not how God sees things. Remember the Lord, what he told the prophet Samuel after he rejected Saul as king and he told him to go find a king in Jesse's house? What did he tell Samuel? He said, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance like they did with Saul. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on where? The heart. The Lord looks within. God doesn't look at things the way that we do. And naturally, we certainly don't look at things the way that God does without the aid of His Spirit and His Word. And so God has given us clear instructions in His Word in order to help us see things or look thing, look at things the right way, that we might learn to look for the right things in order to discern the kind of men God has called into service as the elders and overseers in His church. I mentioned last week a book by David Dixon called The Elder and His Work, and you'll probably hear it a few more times before we're done, but in that book, The Elder and His Work, David Dixon writes this about the elder. He says, The office and work being spiritual, it is necessary that elders should be spiritual men. It is not necessary that they be men of great gifts or worldly position, of wealth and high education, but it is indispensably necessary that they be men of God at peace with him, new creatures in Christ Jesus, engaged in the embassy of reconciliation, that's the church, they must themselves be reconciled. He's saying they must be Christians and be godly. That's the main qualification. He later adds this, which I think is is wise and helpful for us to keep in mind. He says, the usefulness of the elder will depend in the long run more on his character than on his gifts and knowledge. It will depend in the long run more on his character than on his gifts and knowledge. That doesn't mean the gifts don't matter. It doesn't mean knowledge doesn't matter. It means the character is more important. You can teach knowledge. You can't teach character. True words, I think, have rarely been spoken about the office of elder and its qualifications. You'll notice one other thing in that long list in verses 1 through 7, all those qualifications that we read this week and last, uh, what do you notice about them? The overwhelming majority of those qualifications for elder, just as Dixon mentions, they involve character rather than giftedness. He must be able to teach, but that's one thing in the midst of that whole long list that's all about godly character. And where godly character is lacking, the gifts aren't going to be of much use. It's better by far to be humbly gifted and faithful than to be exceedingly gifted and unfaithful. How many such men who are greatly gifted but unfaithful have fallen into scandal and disgrace in our churches? 
You know, even the so-called megachurches, many of them are built around strong personalities and highly gifted men. How many times have we seen, and I, I, I hate to say it, but I'm sure we'll see it more, more and more, uh, they fall into scandal. And the churches try to cover it up because they think his gifts are so great that it must be, you know, what's the saying they're used in politics, too big to fail. And all it does is bring harm to the church. No wonder Christ Jesus our Lord chose simple fishermen to be among his apostles. Not gifted men. Remember the, the, the Sanhedrin, when they were had them on trial, they said, these are just fishermen, these are Galileans. You can tell by their accent. They weren't learned men, but they knew they had been with Jesus, and they were impressed. No wonder Paul later tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It gives you a hint at what kind of men he wants Timothy to look for as the elders he was to appoint in the church. Faithful men. He doesn't say especially gifted men. That's fine too. That's a good thing. If God gives you great gifts, use them for God's glory. But he says faithful men who are faithful to pass along the truth and can be entrusted with the truth of God's word and are willing and able to pass it along and teach it faithfully to the church. May our Lord Jesus Christ, who rules over all things from the right hand of God for the sake of his church, be pleased to raise up from among us, even as he has already begun to do, faithful men who are above reproach to serve as elders and as deacons in his church here in Ramona among us. And may his richest blessing be upon each one whom he calls and upon his family and upon us as his church to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.